and welcome to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about the state of our public debates and how we can have better conversations with those different from ourselves. In this episode, you'll hear a really meaty conversation I had with Dr. Teresa Bejan. She is Associate Professor of Political Theory at Oriel College, Oxford. She received her PhD from Yale University, and it's since been published as the book Mere Civility, Disagreement and the Limits of Toleration. I came across Teresa first when I was researching this podcast, and I found the book really helpful for thinking through how we can navigate really diverse societies like ours. It was therefore brilliant to get to talk to her in person about what we can learn from 17th century Puritans, why we need to develop mental toughness for encountering disagreement, and why academics are in fact as thin-skinned as the rest of us. I hope you enjoy listening. Teresa, thank you so much for coming in to speak to me. And you have had some forewarning about our first question that we asked, the first question of the podcast, which can throw people off and throws me, which is about if you're able to reflect on it, what you think your sacred values might be. If there's something that is a principle or dear or a place, something other than the people that you love in your life, that you try and live your life by and that uh, you really would feel very strongly if you were asked to compromise that or give it up. Right. Well, I, I, I did know this question was coming and I've been thinking about it a bit because um, I think you might have noticed with academics, we're you know, rather disinclined to, to say that we hold anything sacred, right? Because we want to say, you know, nothing is sacred. We follow the truth where it leads. But, um, but I think behind that, I, I'm going to give you a version of an answer. I know that you've gotten from some of the other guests, but I think I would phrase it slightly differently. And I would just say that my sacred principle is, is this idea that it's, it's better to know than not. Right. And you know, there are more or less offensive ways of framing it. I mean, one way of putting it is, you know, knowledge is better than ignorance, but I sort of prefer my way because it's just this idea of the pursuit of knowledge as a kind of um, ethical principle and an idea of uh, the life that's that's best and worth living. And it's something that I, as I was thinking about it, I realized does inform so much what I do and not simply my research. I would actually say, you know, obviously I'd hope that that's informed by the pursuit of knowledge, but, um, but mostly my teaching, you know, this idea of conveying to students that this is a life worth choosing, the life worth leading. And, um, right. It's something that I, I think about more and more as I have you know teach longer and longer and and and, and worry sometimes that that's not always um, informing how we approach our teaching in in the modern university. Do you have a hunch about why that's such a sacred value for you? I mean, I think you know there's always the danger of selecting on the dependent variable in these things. I mean, I'd say you know it, it's the life I've chosen um, in pursuing academia, pursuing this career, and being very fortunate to have the possibility of having this as a career. Cause I think, um, I think I'm relatively early career, um, relative to many of your guests and just, I mean, many of your listeners, listeners will know that, um, you know, a career in academia is not, not an easy one. It's not a, you know, it's a quite competitive, uh, world out there. But I, I I have had the sense of it as a kind of vocation. But in terms of where it comes from, I mean, it was, I mean, that, this idea was very much instilled in me by my parents, um, both of whom are very uh, learned and loving. And um, yeah, this I, it, as we were growing up, it was very much this idea of, you know, we had dinner together every night and we had conversations that were wide ranging about history, about politics, these kinds of, you know, and looking back on it now is incredibly fortunate to have that. But um uh, right. This this pursuit of pursuit of knowledge. Um, 
as one way of living and it's not an obvious way of living. It's possible to live otherwise. Many, if not most, I mean, I think most of us, all of us at some time don't live in that way. But yeah, having that sense that that of the preciousness of that, I think is something that my parents really did, did instill. Unpack that a little bit more for me, because there's a sense of kind of method posed towards the world there. But were there other big ideas or principles in the air, whether they were religious or political or philosophical? What were the ideas, maybe the kind of, not the tribes that formed you, but the senses of belonging perhaps that formed you? Well, I mean, this is another question I I knew was coming and I've been thinking about a bit. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, in terms of my upbringing, you know, I like to joke that I was raised lapsed Catholic. But I, that, that, that's about right. I mean, my, um, you know, I was baptized. I was never confirmed. I went to Catholic school for a few years when I was in um, pre, pre-kindergarten. Um, but there was always this sense of, you know, neither. I mean, my, my mother is uh, Catholic, also lapsed. Um, my father, I don't know if I should say this on the on the radio, but, you know, nominally, I think, converted when they got married. But um, I think he never really took it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I, yeah, I'll come back to that. But I mean, certainly growing up, I I always I grew up with a profound and sort of healthy respect for religion. And, you know, as I've, you know, as as I continue to, you know, it, my, my own research, obviously, as you know, um, it goes quite deeply into religious history and argument. I yeah, I've maintained that sort of respect for religion. I have a lot of admiration for my friends who have faith. It's but it's just something that I, I've, I've come to kind of realize that I lack. And I do experience that as a lack. But so that that's sort of my religious formation. I mean, you have the other side of this story. And I think it does. I mean, it, it goes back to the, the first question and wh- where my sacred value comes from. The fact that my father, my father's Romanian, and he was very fortunate to be able to escape communism in 1969. And he came to the States as a, as a student, speaking no English, having no money, leaving all of his family behind. Um, and so one thing that really I realized, you know, I was so unfortunate to have growing up in the United States was a profound sense of you know, how lucky I was to be where I was and how hard, you know, my, I think many children of immigrants will say this, right, but how hard my parents worked, um, how hard they fought to have the things that so many of us just take for granted. And having that sense that things could be otherwise. I mean, that, and I was thinking, I mean, you know, in preparing for this interview, I was thinking about that. I mean, just, you know, the, it's so easy to take the parish in which one lives as, you know, you mistake one's parish for the world, but also take the particular institutions, the culture, whatever, the language in which one grows up as obvious as, you know, as opposed to contingent. And, you know, in my family, I was really lucky that we didn't, that we, we knew that things were really different elsewhere. We knew our family was suffering elsewhere. I mean, some of my oldest, uh, so my, my first memories are of make, packing up care packages to send to family in Romania full of dial soap and sewing needles because of the shortages. I mean, that's the kind of, you know, the idea that you, you, that you wouldn't have soap, you know, and so that's something that I, um, that certainly has informed, you know, how I live and what I do and, and the kind of work that I do. That's really helpful. Thank you for sharing that. I do feel like even little fragments of people's stories help us understand better where they're coming from and help us listen differently, I think, than if uh, it was just people making arguments and we were able to separate them from the person, the rich person um, and the way they've lived. Uh, I 
want to ask you, I'm going to go straight into the book actually, and then we'll zoom out into um, what does it mean for today, which the book itself does very well. And I first came across you because I actually, I think when I was first thinking about this podcast, because one of the um, areas of research at Theos is about public debates and particularly how we engage across difference. And obviously we have a particular interest in differences of religion and non-religion, belief and non-belief. But I think more broadly, everyone's a bit anxious about our perceived failure to be able to get on with people who are different from us, whether that's new or not, we can talk about. But I came across your book because I was just reading around following trails of footnotes for people who'd written this area. And I came across Miscivility, which came out last year, which is a fascinating thing because it is a, is a historical deep dive into a real moment in political history. But then I think does something quite special, which is a, apply it very plausibly to this to this moment and not in that way that history often tries to do because of like impact assessments, <laughs> you know. Oh, this is exactly the same as now because dot, dot, dot in a way that you think, well, it's really not. That, that's not, This isn't that, which I think is also why, you know, you've written in the broadsheets and all over the place about it. But it, bearing in mind, probably most of our listeners won't get a chance to read it or perhaps have a book pile too high. Give me a little uh, uh, summary of what the book is about, perhaps starting with this wonderful character of Roger Williams that Brits almost certainly won't have heard of. Right. Um, and just to say, I mean, to, to put put your listeners at ease, you know, when I started writing the book, which was based on my dissertation at, at Yale, I didn't I had never heard of Roger Williams. So, you know, I, just to say, uh, coming from the American South, Roger Williams, who uh, is famous as the founder of the colony of Rhode Island, you know, it, news of his existence had not traveled to North Carolina, let's just say, um, which is where I grew up. But um, right, so the book, the book is broadly about the concept of civility um, and understanding that concept of civility, both in contemporary debates. So debates today about, you know, this much vaunted kind of crisis of civility, the worries that we have about the tenor of democratic debate, but then also exploring the concept of civility in the context of 17th century debates about religious toleration. And it's a central contention of the book, and you alluded to it, that um, that the concept of civility and its relationship to toleration is something that, you know, really sort of uh, you know, comes to the fore in debates after the Reformation, and in a way has just remained with us in tolerant society. So there is, it's it's not, I, I, I will take your claim that the way I do it is plausible and sort of take that to the bank because that was high praise. But, you know, it, it, it's to say, that actually, if we're concerned about civility and what it means today, we really need to understand how it, that concept kind of emerged in the context of very practical, everyday problems of coexistence and just how much difference a society could bear. Which is what really struck me, actually, that this moment where you've got some very strongly held identities, you know, these are groups of people who have fled their home countries because they didn't feel like those identities were uh, were welcome, but for quite different sets of identities and have, have ended up in Rhode Island for different reasons, all to Together and there's there's a sense of flux and newness and uh, navigating the differences there that just did feel very very relevant for this moment a sense of uh, energy behind it so you've got Rhode Island new, newly formed colony at this at this this time right I mean and and it's you know as was the case with uh, with you know many of the colonization efforts in the in in New England um, you know people are living there before it has a kind of legal status and so one of the you know ongoing dramas of Roger Williams' life is you know having to go you know, obviously he he leaves England as a young man with this early generation of Puritans who flee to the New World um, but he keeps on having to go back to London because he has to try to get a patent for his colony 
colony. And unfortunately, the fact that there's this little thing called a civil war culminating in a regicide means that even though he is successful in getting a patent in the in the early 1640s, he has to go back yeah. <laughs> to get a new one from the new regime. So, I mean, the story I tell is very much a transatlantic story. And what in, in that, you know, it's important. Um, I mean, it's important for a lot of reasons, one of which is just I think that the, the kind of way we tend to think about the history of religious toleration, we really tend to think of that as a kind of European story. Um, and we've missed out entirely the kind of experimentation with different ways of living um, and also the depth of the challenges, as you alluded to, the, the, just the challenges of just how deep these differences were. Because, again, you might think that, you know, in terms of the people who who chose or, or were forced to leave old England for new England, these were not the people who were, by and large, willing to treat their religious commitments as matters of indifference. Yes, of course. So talk to me about what you feel was special about uh, the way Roger Williams navigated this, because we obviously think about this a lot at Theos when you've got societies of deep diversity like they had then and we have now. In Charles Taylor's uh, phrase, deep difference, a sense of you believe and you belong and you behave probably in quite different ways to your neighbour or the person living over the street. And two obvious options for how you handle that difference is you you fragment into your tribal identities and you just don't engage with each other and you ghettoize essentially. And that's one of the big risks. And the other one is that you impose a kind of false peace by one identity sort of squishing all the others or a kind of pretended homogeneity where uh, everyone just agrees not to talk about the fact that they disagree. And I think certainly in the late 20th century, that's what we've tended to in the West, a kind of like, don't mention the war, you know, uh, every, you know, uh, and culminating the kind of sort of pseudo rulesy and this is what public reason looks like. These are things we can agree on. We'll talk about these things. These are the things we just can't agree on. So we won't talk about them. What struck me about your book is what Roger Williams doing was, was neither of those things, really. It was something much much harder, much um, more challenging, but potentially more productive. It has to be said that one of the things that drove me to write the book I wrote was, you know, I'm a, I'm a political theorist. I was writing a I was writing a dissertation to get my PhD in political theory. So I was very much coming from a kind of sense of contemporary debates about religion and politics, public reason, um, the meaning of tolerance, etc. And so and also trying to articulate my my discomfort and frustration sometimes with the with what I saw as the dominant theories about how coexistence has to work and write this idea that coexistence in a tolerant society depends on people maintaining a civil silence about their differences. I mean, you know, the, what was really striking to me in a lot of the kind of, you know, contemporary civility talk um, when I was starting out was just how very often when people talk about civility, they're basically saying, um, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> he explained. Right. And so that sense of a tolerant society is one in which we really need to suppress our differences or, um, or paper over our differences, um, just didn't seem to me to be attractive. And it also just didn't seem obvious to me why that should be the case. And so it really excited me about um, about Roger Williams and what he, you know, the uh, the lively experiment, it, it's called, <laughs> that he conducted in Rhode Island was just precisely that it, 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 it imagined a tolerant society, something quite different as a kind of society in which not only um, not only could we accommodate difference, but we could also accommodate disagreement and often very uncivil disagreement about 
about those differences. And what intrigues me about Williams, again, as a political theorist, I mean, the book is, as you said, I mean, it's a quite deep historical dive. I mean, it's a quite historical book. But again, I, my primary identity as a theorist is that Williams, Williams works out toleration and coexistence in practice before he ever theorizes it. And, I, and I've come to think that this is really the essential point because, because of that, because he puts practice first, he ends up experimenting with things that theorists would have ruled out in the first draft, right? A political theorist would never say, you know what would be a great basis on which to build a tolerant society? Bunch of uncivil Quakers, antinomians like Anne Hutchinson. Oh, and here we'll have Pete, you'll have American Indians who not only worship, you know, are, are not only um, worshiping many different gods, but also speak an entirely different language with very deeply different cultural norms. And you know, we'll throw in some Catholics there too. That's a good idea. And maybe some Jews. Great. You know, this is how we're going to get our tolerant society. No one would have said that. Yeah. You know, every, that's not, that's not going to work. Right. But Williams doesn't have that luxury. That's the society he's in, that society he's given. And and so that kind of practical achievement continues as a kind of constraint on his theory. He's never going to say that this isn't possible because he knows it to he knows it to be possible. So what were the mechanisms or the principles that he used and Rhode Island used to, to govern that difference, to, to stop it either turning into kind of tribal factionalism or a slightly repressive um, silence over differences? Right. So this is really good. And this is something that I think um, is perhaps the most important lesson that Williams has to offer us today. So what's really striking about Williams is that he, I mean, he understands toleration in its kind of traditional sense as a sort of grudging permission of that which one doesn't approve, right? You know, sort of holding your nose and sort of saying, okay, I'll, you know, if you must, but I don't have to like it, right? So he has that sense of toleration as as a kind of permission without approval. But at the same time, he thinks of toleration as an engaged practice. And you might think that these things really don't go together. And Surely, I think they don't in theory. The idea that, you know, you're putting up with something probably means that you don't want to have to face it all the time. And so, you know, there you there you have the idea we retreat. We have our different communities. We have our kind of different ghettos. Um, but for Williams, who who is, you know, fundamentally an evangelical Christian, that's never going to be an option because he not only wants to tolerate people because he's resigned to their existence. He says, you know, one must go out of the world if one would not cohabit with with infidels. Um, it's an important lesson. Um, Uh, But he also thinks that it's his duty as a Christian to convert them if he can, but more fundamentally to witness to them against their errors. And it's that idea of negative witness as part of a kind of engaged toleration that I think makes possible what was possible in Rhode Island. The idea that, you know, you're not going to be witnessing all the time. It's not a 24-7 thing, although I think sometimes it was for Roger Williams, which is why he drove everyone nuts. But um, the idea that part of what we're doing in this tolerant society is not giving up on each other. And we are going to call out each other's errors. We are going to do it and that we are going to remain engaged. We're going to remain in the room. Gosh, it's so challenging uh, with what that would mean now. But when I was rereading the book this morning, I was thinking about a report that my colleague Paul Bickley did, which I'll give you a copy of, which is called The Problem of Proselytism, which was a very kind of, in some ways, a limited thing looking at in the UK, there was quite a lot of fear amongst kind of government agencies, secular funders, councils at working with faith-based organisations because there is this kind of bogeyman really of proselytism that we can't give them money because they'll proselytise. But it's a really 
poorly defined term on both sides. And our instinct was that it was much less of a problem than people thought it was, because actually there was quite a lot of internal censorship going on within faith-based organisations. The reason I mention it is that one of the arguments against Protestantism, and there's various others about the vulnerability of marginalised groups and kind of threatening established group identities um, and a couple of other things. But one of the arguments against Protestantism is, is the incivility argument, that proselytism or evangelism is in and of itself in uncivil um, because... In fact, I've never quite understood why, but is that an argument that you've come across? Yeah, that is very much an argument that's made in the 17th century and it continues to be made today that just in and of itself, the the attempt to convert others. Um, and I think I think you're right. Very, very rarely is the kind of is, is it spelled out why that should be uncivil. But what's great about the 17th century is that people are always going to actually give you the give you the reasons. I mean, so Hobbes, for instance, thinks that evangelism is uncivil and it's because it's a, it's an assertion of superiority because it says I'm right you're wrong. And to point out that someone's wrong is to have, you know, accuse them of, you know, at best reasoning incorrectly and at worst um, being an idiot. And so, <laughs> I mean, but, but Hobbes, again, I mean, we, Hobbes, we might sort of recoil from that and say, well, you know, that, that's, that's, that, that can't be right. But I mean, for Hobbes, evangelism is just a really extreme version of a problem that that is uh, true of any and all disagreements. So evangelism is uncivil, but for Hobbes, evangelism is uncivil for the very reason that all disagreement mm. is uncivil because disagreement is disagreeable. It's this kind of offense to our pride as knowers and reasoners. So there's the Hobbes account, which I think is important. And in that we could put, we wouldn't need to put a religious evangelism as a particular category, but we could use it for, you know, Brexit or anything really. Exactly. Right. And so one of the reasons I actually find the Hobbes analysis attractive is precisely because it doesn't rely on what I think is really a basically, you know, I'll be provocative, but a sort of baseless or at least very difficult distinction to maintain between a kind of assertion of religious views versus non-religious views, yes, right? Yes, right? As a special right. category that needs kind of siphoning off. Exactly. I mean, I think that one of the things that, again, is so striking about contemporary politics is just the way the, you know, is how much, um, how much, you know, contemporary political partisans comport themselves as righteous zealots uh, in a sectarian way. I mean, you, you talk a lot about uh, tribes, right? The language of tribalism. I mean, I talk about the language of sects. I think that um, modern life and modern identity, whether religious or otherwise, is is sectarian in a really important way. And so, again, thinking about um, thinking about the continuities between uh, sectarian identities, whether they be religious or or other wise is important. And then it goes back to the proselytism point. I mean, the the idea that um, it's offensive to tell someone that they're wrong. And it's just tr true that 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 is offensive. I mean, that, yeah. they, we don't like to be told that we're wrong. It yeah. doesn't work. And um, I think there are more robust accounts of saying, well, you know, it, it's particularly bad to tell someone who's a member of a vulnerable, marginal group that they're wrong or to sort of insult in some way the core um, the core commitments uh, of their identity. But I, I think that's, that is basically when we think of evangelism in say as uncivil, I think that's, that's, the, that's the hunch. Which is a problem, right? Because everyone thinks they're right. And we all think we're right and everyone else is wrong. And if no one, no one ever makes the attempt, and I think there's ways of doing it that are more or less civil, you know, you're telling someone that they're wrong by calling them an idiot or 
you know, throwing insults at them is a, is quite a different thing from from suggesting that they might be wrong. And could we have an interesting debate about it? Right. And so this this is I mean, this is the kind of key ethical point I want to make in the book and what I really get from Roger Williams. And again, it's it, it goes back to the sort of the, the practice theory point, because in theory, if if we know evangelism to be offensive in this way, then we would say, well, in a tolerant society, we'd want to stamp it out. We want to cut it down. And that is what Hobbes tries to do. He says, you know, and if we're going to have differences in our society, we can't have evangelism. We can't have disagreement about them. But Williams, you know, Williams does the absolutely insane, impossible thing of saying, no, 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 we're going to have a tolerant society that's based on a kind of principle of universal evangelism. Everybody not only has a right, but basically has a duty to engage and call out and witness, right? And then maybe that can be the basis of a tolerant society. Um, it's not an... A, it's not a particularly, let's say, comfortable place to be. It's not a particularly calm place to be. Uh, you know, you might find that you need to, you know, tap out for a few minutes or a few days and get your get your stamina back. But um, but that that basically is, you know, it 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 can work. It can work. And so the idea that we want to rule it out because it's impossible. I mean, that that you know, I think that's what a lot of political theorists have tried to do. It's like, well, no, it's not impossible. You might say it's not attractive, and then we can have those discussions about why. But I actually think that, you know, having spent a lot of time with Roger Williams and having spent time with Roger Williams um, as a, you know, as someone who's, you know, living now and also someone who's of the generation known as millennial, um, (laughs) as a millennial. um, Reclaim. I know, right? I I, I think exactly like all other, you know, insulting denominations. I'm going to own that one and say, actually, you know, there's something about this you know, this, this calling out, this witnessing against errors that, you know, it might not bring us closer together. It probably won't, but it nevertheless will lead to a different kind of sociability and a different kind of coexistence. And one I think that is more attractive, if not more pleasant or agreeable than the kind of retreat model, the model in which we're all just so afraid of offending each other. And so, so indignant when we are offended. I'm really wrestling with this. I've been wrestling with it since I read your book because I feel like I feel like I, I possibly tend slightly more to the utopian <laughs> in in a kind of inst- instinctive sense that one I'm kind of just you know probably just a bit fluffy and have a, and my sacred value I think I don't know is is about equality of relationships and therefore I think probably for me like maintaining a kind of human to human relationship would be a truth is a high value right but would be a, that the the relational health of a society would be higher for me than um, I don't want to say that truth is not a high value because it makes it sound <laughs> awful well this is great no no already the early modern uh, like framing of this has has now allowed you to see. The, the, the sort of the consequences of your view. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so but I've been I've been wrestling with what does it mean to but I do agree that disagreement is unavoidable in, in societies of deep difference and even in societies of reasonable homogeneity. That's just the, the, the world that we're in. And as it's ine- inevitable, what does it take to train ourselves to deal with what is fundamentally a, fundamentally a kind of emotional and psychological challenge in us where we get kicked into a threat reaction and we want to withdraw from the disagreeableness. And you've talked about a kind of mental toughness, which I think gets trained into as an academic. I I often see it in academics because the whole point of kind of academic discourse is people pick apart your work, right? You get peer reviewed, you stand up at a conference. Every academic I know has got really quite a thick skin with disagreement because that is the culture of that world. But for those who aren't academics, the level of disagreeableness that um, disagreement can trigger actually can be quite overwhelming and certain personalities 
personality types and certain groups find it harder than others. And therefore, when you have a very rambunctious, kind of happy with a bit of a ding dong public square, is there a risk that those voices are excluded? And if that is a risk, are there things that we can do to kind of train ourselves to get better at it? Just as a sidebar, some academics have quite thick skins, but... I'd actually say most of us, we have very thin skins and we really, we really don't like it when people disagree with us. Which is just a lovely thing to hear, right? To admit that, that you're all humans too and you're personally invested. It's not just disembodied ideas. Oh yeah, no, 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 no. We we are deeply invested. I mean, there is something, you send out a a journal for peer review. It's like you're sending your child into the world and it comes back sort of with all of these, yeah, exactly, (laughs) rejected, stamped on it. But you know, that's really beside that. But just, yeah, academics are people too. That should should just be the the headline. No, and this is something I've thought about too in a, I guess I should say, I like to joke, you know, all dissertations are exercises in autobiography, but you know, we should all, we should ask questions about why Teresa Bejan found herself motivated to write this book. Struggle with disagreement. I find it disagreeable. I'm conflict averse. I think there are, you know, there is an important gendered element to a lot of this, the kind of valorization of disagreement and philosophic debate. You know, I think today we understand that as well, you know, to, to some extent, that's a kind of masculinist, a kind of gendered space. Um, We need to be sensitive to the ways in which that excludes. Same for race and other kind of marginal identities. I'm super, super sensitive to to that point. And so I would say that the, when I talk about mental toughness, that's just one element of it. And that is something that can be trained up. That is something we can build. I mean, when I I think about my own experiences as a student, um, you know, people laugh to hear this. They, I guess they think it's implausible, but it was the fact that I I would not speak in class. I was too scared. I couldn't, you know, I would have a total anxiety panic attack. And I kind of realized early on, I said, you know, Teresa, you've got to just, the first time there's something opened up, you're going to raise your hand and you're going to say something. You're just going to say something. And that, you know, I trained myself, right? I trained myself to overcome that fear reaction. And the same goes for disagreement. So so it's just to say, you know, this training is possible. It's not easy, but it is a kind of, you know, it's saying it would be better if I were better at handling this. Um, but then there's the other side of it, which is the, um, so there's the kind of mental toughness. On the other side, the, I would actually say comes up in the book, but I, I've come to think it's it's even more important than I, than I saw then, is this virtue of epistemic humility as also being essential to the evangelist. So epistemic humility as something different from skepticism. So it's not saying that you have to be, you have to be open to the, to the wrongness of your, of your views, right? You know, epistemic humility can, be compatible with a sense of one's own righteousness and rightness. Now, and nevertheless, that righteousness is coupled with a sense of the limitations of one's own perspective. Um, and again, this possibility that other people think otherwise and know themselves to be equally righteous, yes. right? We, we're not both right, but that is simply a fact of the matter. That's a fact on the ground. And so I, I think that this virtue of epistemic humility is one that is in kind of short supply uh, nowadays and also one that it would be good to to cultivate because having a sense of the limitations of one owns per, one, one's own perspective is again, a drive to to listen to and include and hear other voices. It makes you do the work then of making sure that those voices get, get a chance to be heard. 
Yeah, I love that you use the phrase epistemic humility because it's something that I kind of circle around. Um, and for a long time, I didn't, I wouldn't have known what that meant. So just for for clarity, epistemology is just about ways of knowing. So it's just uh, a humility in in how much we can know, how certain we can be of the things that we know. And actually, for me. One of the frustrations of my job is that people think of religious people as having no epistemic humility because, you know, you have been handed a revelation from God. And that, of course, is the case for some religious people, much to my uh, irritation. For me, the my Christianity is in some ways what leads me to the epistemic humility. You know, the, the sense of I am not God. I am. Uh, I see through a glass darkly. There is something about the world and the way our bodies are and the way we, you know, we do the things we do not want to do that has trained me, I think, in a in a, in a very a high level of scepticism towards myself, both in my behaviour and in my ability to know things. So it is interesting for me to see this moment where kind of behavioural psychology and neuroscience and these understandings of how we know and why we believe what we believe, in some ways, almost drifting back towards uh, a more religious anthropology that is much more limited. So that kind of enlightenment moment of we are all great rational processes of data on the way to enlightenment. How's that going? Yeah, exactly. Do you feel like that is a perspective that would be useful? And are there, are there ways which practically those listening can t- sort of try and model that and embody it better? Yeah, I mean, and, and thank you for um, for clarifying. I mean, yeah, epistemic humility, it's 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 understanding um, the limits of oneself as a knower. And it's it's right to say that some religious believers, but I think it's not, this is not true only of religious believers, you know, have this, this sense of one's own certainty and others' error that makes it really, you know, that that, that is at odds with uh, an acknowledgement of those limitations. So, that, but then if we turn to thinking about how, you know, how we might model this virtue, how we might bring it into to, um, public debates, I mean, I would say of that, what I say of civility generally, which is that it it begins at home. Civility begins at home. And, you know, one of the frustrations of of my frustrations, I realized, you know, of of so much civility talk is that we generally talk about civility and incivility because we want to um, complain about other people and we want to sanction them. Right. So the great thing about civility and incivility, if someone's guilty of incivility, it's implied then that they're deserving of some kind of sanction. But I just think that you're doing it wrong. Civility is not that. I mean, civility is fundamentally about how you comport yourself, how you speak to others, how you deal with those who really, really think that you're wrong. And it's not, you know, in in one response, one really natural response to encountering someone who really pisses you off is to have nothing to do with that person. I mean, that's a human response. And, uh, you know, it's, there's definitely a time and place for it for sure. But also to having that sense of, well, I can do, I can do otherwise too. You know, I think about this in terms of, you know, you say in the public sphere, I mean, the public sphere today really, you know, very often often is just Twitter. Uh, The sense that um, responses other than outrage are possible. You are a human person. You have this this whole repertoire of possible responses when someone pisses you off. Try something other than outrage. Just try it. And um, that's the thing. And I do it. It's it's something I challenge myself. I challenge myself in that reaction. So you might say, oh, okay, well, you know, Teresa, this sounds all nice and good. You know, this is all for the ethics, you know, sort of the ethical point. I mean, but for me, the ethical point is also going back to my answer to your very first question, it's a kind of vocational point. I mean, so civility begins at home, epistemic humility begins at home. And this is something that I model for my students. And I think that as a teacher and increasingly now as this, you know, this 
strange beast we might think of as a public intellectual. I'm very uncomfortable with that. You know, partly what I'm trying to do is is model a particular way of of being and arguing in in public, and to say that um you know I don't. It's if, if you think about, it, I mean, the, the fact that I ended up writing this book about a really intolerant and obnoxious, obstreperous evangelical Christian, I a lapsed Catholic, you know, Romanian American from the South. You know, it's, it's, it doesn't make any sense. I don't really have many affinities with Roger Williams. I don't sort of see myself in him at all. But um, but nevertheless, he, he's this this alien way of being that I think is actually ethically attractive. And I would challenge myself to um to see if I can be a little bit more like him. Well, thank you so much. On that note, I think that is a, a powerful message to leave people on. Civility begins at home and challenge yourself to have a reaction other than outrage. Teresa, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. Our producer is Hussein Kazvani, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd love to hear what you think. Please do get in touch via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast or sacredpodcast at gmail.com. Tell us what you loved, what you hated, and who you think we should talk to next. We'd also be really grateful if you'd rate and review us wherever you get your podcast and spread the word to your friends. Thanks very much.